Are you looking for a new math curriculum? CTC Math specializes in providing online video tutorials that take a multi-sensory approach to learning, creative graphics and animation synchronized with the friendly voice of internationally acclaimed teacher Pat Murray makes learning math easy and effective. Favorably reviewed and Kathy Duffy's 103 top picks and the Old Schoolhouse Crew review. The lessons are short and concise to help your child break down concepts and appreciate math in a whole new way. Visit ctcmath.com today to start your free trial. That's ctcmath.com. If you already looked at the title of this episode, you know exactly what I'm about to announce and introduce, but I still feel like doing sort of a drum roll (laughs) because I'm so flippin' excited. Today's show marks a new beginning in the Brave Writer podcast. Here's what's been happening. I've been doing this show for many years, since 2012. We are at episode 169, if you just count the number of episodes I've recorded. We've done them mostly by seasons, but I'm I'm kind of over the seasons thing. So we're starting now from number 169. And I realized that it's a little bit lonely sitting in this chair. It's why I keep interviewing people. But what I'm really looking for is a great conversation partner. Some of my best ideas come when I'm right in the middle of talking. It's like my brain doesn't even know that it's thinking that thought until a conversation partner prompts me or tugs it out of me and then voila, new idea, new thought, new insight. There is one person in my universe who is better than most at causing that popcorn feeling of insight to occur in my brain. And she is none other than Melissa Wiley. Now, those of you who homeschool may be familiar with Melissa. She is a longtime homeschooler of six kids. She has one child who has special needs and has worked um, through the school system as opposed to being at home. But the other five have been homeschooled from the beginning. A couple of them are already graduated and through college and doing great in their lives as adults. Melissa is also a children's book writer. She's written two novels that we absolutely love in the Brave Writer world. One of them is called The Prairie Thief, and the other one is called Nerviest Girl in the World. Melissa also works for Brave Writer. She writes our quills and our darts. She's taught many of our online classes. Melissa is a valued friend, an amazing colleague, and a veteran home educator parent who I think you are just going to love. So today, it's all about Melissa. Let's get to know her. And we're also going to touch on the story or sort of journey of the internet as we've experienced it in our 25-year friendship. My favorite aspect of today's conversation is that you get to hear, perhaps for the first time, Melissa's sort of style of homeschooling that is known in the homeschool world as tidal schooling. You know, like the ocean tides, how the tide comes in and the tide goes out. This sort of metaphor for how to educate our kids was incredibly valuable to me while I was homeschooling. And I think it's really going to be great for you. That said, 
You do not have to homeschool to benefit from this podcast. So much of what we share is really just great parenting ideas. And so I hope you'll stick around, join in the fun, and enjoy today's brand new journey into the future. Introducing my co-host, Melissa Wiley. Oh my gosh, we're already talking (laughs) and we just started. This is amazing. Melissa Wiley is on the podcast. (laughs) Do you want to know something, Melissa? You are the most popular webinar on the Brave Learner Home site. Really? Oh my goodness. People love to hear about title schooling. Obviously, we'll get there. But here we are, podcast family. We are making a change in the Brave Writer universe. I realized I'm tired of monologues and I went through my card catalog in my brain. Who, who, who? And then all of a sudden, it just became obvious. It has to be Melissa Wiley. <laughs> I am so happy that you you turned to that card, Julie. <laughs> so <laughs> Melissa, roll it That's it. The mental Rolodex. That's it. It's not the card catalog. I'm already mixing metaphors. So Melissa, how do we know each other? Do you want to tell that story? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So I remember it so clearly because I was new to the internet. I got my first, uh, my first baby, my first book deal and my first modem all in the spring of 1995. Amazing. And by 1996, I had learned how to breastfeed and <laughs> had written a book and had discovered homeschooling through like AOL um, discussion boards, which led to Yahoo groups. And suddenly, Julie, there you were on this, this, um, it was a homeschooling Yahoo group. And then it sort of spun off into this very small group of homeschooling moms who write. And you just, your voice jumped out at me. I felt such a connection with you. And um, that has never changed. (laughs) No, it sure hasn't. And it is funny to think back to the way that writing and homeschooling were these two passions of ours, that subset. And of course, I was immediately in awe of you because you were already published. I was busy trying to get children's picture books published. And I kept getting those very gracious, no thank you notes. The kind that would make you think, oh, they did actually read it because they wrote me something personal, but they still don't want it. (laughs) And so I was... Personal rejection letter. That's a treasure. (laughs) I mean, isn't it? That's what we're told. I I still felt rejected, but you're right. I did. I, I took it as encouragement to keep going. But meanwhile, you were actually writing these books and I was so in awe. And you started... What year did you start your blog, Melissa? 2005, January, 2005. So it's about to turn 18. It's about to turn 18. Oh my gosh. It's a full grown person. It can vote. (laughs) Right. It can vote. (laughs) Um, Yeah. By that point I had four children and, you know, I had been so active in so many homeschooling discussion groups. And Julie, do you remember like how my blog came into being? I don't. Please (laughs) tell that story. story. So I had started a website like two years earlier. I was writing um, books about Laura Ingalls Wilder's ancestors. And I had a website for that. And blogs were just starting to come onto my radar in 2005. And I subscribed to the Brave Writer blog. Um, 
And it was pretty new at that point. And one day you issued an invitation for other homeschoolers who blog oh, to yeah. send their links. I and I was like, why don't I have a blog? And 10 minutes later, I did. And about an hour later, I sent you the link to my first post. <laughs> so, so you, you were the impetus. Oh my gosh. And then I just, that sounds like I set you up to tell that story. And now that you're telling it, I remember, but here's what's so cool. You guys, Melissa was the earliest reviewer of the writer's jungle. And because she was a published children's author, I was like starstruck. I was like, a real writer likes my book. And I think this is the dynamic that we share is that we're both mutual fans of each other's work. Exactly. I used to be so jealous of your blog because I thought it had so much more activity than mine. And you have this winsome quality when you write you could remember literally verbatim long conversations you had with every <laughs> child. I mean, that was an amazing season. Yeah, my my husband finds that quality um, somewhat challenging. In <laughs> <laughs> yes, in in debates with spouses, being able to memorize the conversations is an advantage for sure. <laughs> right. Well, I love this. So we started together when the internet was dawning. And not only did we discover we were both writers, and not only did we discover that we were a fan of each other's writing, we were both embarking on homeschooling sizable families. And part right. of what attracted me to you from the beginning and continues to is your philosophy of education. Um, I wonder if you could just share like a thumbnail sketch of what you call title schooling. Because I remember reading that blog post and being like, Jiminy Christmas, this is so brilliant. I remember um, the metaphor jumped into my head in 2006 as the result of a lot of blog conversations about, it seemed like at that point in time, there was a real tendency to want to put yourself in a bucket, you know, to, to have a label. Are you a Charlotte Mason homeschooler? Are you an unschooler? And I was some of both, um, not totally one of either. And and I know that you're, you yes. are similar in that respect. Um, so I was trying to just sort of think out loud and explain to myself what works. Because all the time that I was having these discussions about what kind of homeschooler are you, homeschooling was happening really successfully in my home. <laughs> it was great. Like, like, it was almost like two separate things. The academic um, urge to identify. And then also just what we did every day. And it was lovely and wonderful. So I came up with this um, description of high tide and low tide times. I recognized that we had shifts. There were times when it worked really well for us to be more structured, for me to plan out, sort of map the, the journey that we were going to embark on. And um, so that's more Charlotte Mason or classical education style. I'm the captain of the ship, but also I want to keep my crew happy. Um, so I make sure that conditions are great on board. Um, and we're having this adventure together. And then other times I would recognize that like the wind had changed. The tide was coming, going out. Low tide is more like taking the kids to the shore and everybody's kind of doing their own thing, exploring what interests them the most. So you've got somebody lying on the beach reading and you've got somebody, you know, poking around in a rock pool. And that was our more unschooly times. 
of really, you know, me facilitating their deep immersion in what really gripped them at their own pace. And my job was to make sure just like you take them to the shore and you make sure they've got sunscreen and snacks. Um, <laughs> it's keep them such fed a- and keep feeding their, their interests with materials and experiences. It's been such a meaningful metaphor to so many homeschoolers because I do think that you and I share this one perspective and that is that all the various philosophies of education can be mined for value. So we don't have to either accept or reject in totality classical education or unschooling or Charlotte Mason or textbooks or living books. We can actually discover the meaningful relationship to learning that each of them offers and include them in our lives as they find meaning. So by instead of identifying with a type of philosophy, instead you were describing the behavior of the way your homeschool worked. So at high tide, it's a little more intentional, a little more parent-led. At low tide, it's a little bit more free, a little bit more child-led. But it allows for that variety so that we don't get locked in ideologically and then punish ourselves and or our children when we've gotten bored of it, when it's not working as well anymore, right? Exactly, exactly. Things change. Personalities change. Your family dynamic is changing all the time. And what works great for one kid, you know, we all know it doesn't necessarily work for the other, but it's also just the seasons of life that your family goes through. When we lived in Virginia, I found that we we did high tide in the summer and the winter because that was when we wanted to be inside. <laughs> oh, yeah. Virginia summers. I didn't want to be, you know, out at the nature center, but spring and fall, forget it. We needed to be outdoors. And, you know, that was wonderful low tide. And the books that we would read would be informed by those shifts and and the kids' interests. And interests change. My interests change. So, of course, I expect that my children's will. One of the ideas that came to me while you were speaking about high and low tide is that sometimes too, that metaphor applies to a specific subject and not necessarily an entire season, right? So we we were a little bit more low tide around science. We went sort of topic by topic. We went on field trips. We just checked out books from the library and investigated an interest. If a child had a question like, what's a fingerprint? The next thing you know, we're studying fingerprints and we're doing fingerprints and we're finding out all the uses of fingerprints and it's tied into the biology of skin. So now we're going to understand the epidermis and the different layers. And Mm -hmm. and that was kind of a low tide way of doing science. But we were much more of the quote unquote high tide around things like math. There was more of a structure. There was more repetition. I was more in charge. There were moments where we would play a lot of board games and I was really known for wanting to make math interesting. So I was constantly on the hunt for things that made it lively. But by and large, there was a structure. We were following it. I was in charge of it. Did you find that that was true for you as well, that that metaphor also applies to the way you treated certain subjects? Very much so. I remember at one point, again, in those early blogging days, when it sort of hit me that we had two types of learning happening on the regular, accidental and on-purpose learning. And on-purpose learning for us tended to be things like music lessons, foreign language, unless you're in an environment where you can immerse, 
um, then for a, a different language is always pretty much on purpose learning. Um, but accidental learning, like your fingerprint story, perfect example. And interest is there and you, you start digging into it and they're just learning so much without you having had to plan it. You're still doing a lot of facilitating work. Um, but it's not it's not quite the same as so for us math tended to be on purpose learning we would only do math in our high tide and low tide only do math we would only do on purpose you know book math in high tide and low tide would be more like my daughter we're all into playing um harvest moon and my daughter puts together a binder that that she's calculated the profit margins on all of the different crops based on their growing time and do they one time or repeat you know so <laughs> it was probably better than some of the high tide on purpose math we learned oh my gosh isn't that amazing i mean that is the truth i remember noah got into an entire analysis of roller coaster speeds and structures at amusement <laughs> parks around America. And he created an entire notebook where each page was dedicated to a different coaster. And it included like the, um, I don't even know the words, the degrees of the angles and the loop-de-loops and the structure either made out of certain kinds of titanium or if they were a wooden roller coaster, how many cars, you know, like all that stuff, the speed that they went, their highest speed, their slowest speeds. I think sometimes we forget how much we could actually experience math in a low tide way because a lot of us are insecure. And this is the piece I want to point out. We tend to go into subjects that make us feel nervous with a high tide mindset. It almost <laughs> feels like maybe we should reverse it. I don't know. Maybe a group of homeschoolers listening right now could test this theory. But if we went into a subject we don't know well, where our confidence was low, with just armed with only our curiosity... And we actually encountered the subject instead of trying to master and control it because we're afraid we will fail it. I wonder what that would be like. That's such a good point. I, I'm thinking it over now. And those, my own areas of less expertise did tend to be, or do still tend to be, our more high tide studies. Not everything, um, because sometimes they know that there's things that if I don't make a plan for it, it'll fall through the cracks. Like um, Shakespeare is an example for me, like a super high priority for my family and a high interest area and a, an area that could easily be experienced in a low tide way and often is. But there are times when I'm like, oh, I need to remember, like we should read another play uh. and work it into high tide. Yes. Um, I, and I'm wondering too, even just with this metaphor, if it's helpful to remember that it is a metaphor, you don't have to perfectly define it. You might start out in this sort of exploratory, curious way, and then you find a tool to help you actually teach it. So I'll give an example of that in our family. I was in grad school at the time getting a degree, uh, a master's in theology at our local Xavier University. And so I started studying New Testament Greek. And my daughter, Katrin, got super fascinated with the alphabet. And some of you may know she had uh, a lot. It took her longer to learn to read than my other kids. I don't think it was harder for her. It just took longer because whatever penny needed to drop where she understood the phonetic principle just didn't happen when she was younger. It happened with Greek. 
she got interested in the alphabet and she wanted to make place cards for Thanksgiving using the Greek alphabet. And suddenly we were sounding out our names because I didn't know how to spell them in Greek automatically. I had to like sound it out and we did it together. Anyway, my point is she got so interested in Greek. We bought her a Greek program so she could learn (laughs) Greek. So it started out in this low tide, very curious way. But when she got quote unquote serious about it and actually wanted to like write her own sentences, we bought a program. So sometimes that's the way it goes too. You'll start out in one modality. Maybe you start out in high tide and then somebody gets an interest in one aspect of what you're studying, you know, like what is a tragedy in Shakespeare? And suddenly you're like, well, what constitutes tragedy in all literature? Well, what about in film? Well, what about in poetry? You know, and the next thing you know, you're into the ancient Greek humors and you didn't even know that's where you were going, right? (laughs) Right. And I love, I love that story about Cageman. And I love that you talked about it. It, when I, when I am asked to talk about title homeschooling, I'm always quick to say, you know, it's not a method. It's, it's not a, a method to follow. It's a description of what learning looks like in my home. And now I've heard, you know, since in the years since in many, many homes, those following those seasons of learning. And it, to me, it relates a lot to what Brave Writer talks to about planning from behind. Yes. I always felt like that was what my blog was. It was a chronicle of what we did every day, which is planning from behind. It's making note of noticing all of those amazing learning experiences that happened and all those great moments and the conversations. And I wanted to keep hold of that and value it and then be able to, to know how to create the conditions that, that allow that to happen. You know, that's right. When you said some learning happens by accident, I don't know about you, but I found it hard to give myself credit for accidental learning. And so planning from behind is a way of taking credit for the way inspiration erupted without your advanced knowledge. I think some of us almost, I I know for me personally, I won't speak for everyone. I almost felt like if I hadn't planned it in advance, I didn't deserve credit. It almost felt like, Well, come on, Julie, you're not that good of a home educator if that had to happen by accident and you couldn't anticipate and think ahead and plan a nice schedule. So therefore, no, Julie, that doesn't count. You don't get credit. (laughs) But it took me realizing, and I'm sure some of it was fueled by reading faithfully, reading your blog. What I realized is that we are seeding our imaginations all the time. We are reading each other's blogs or Instagram accounts or Facebook groups. We are reading books. We are talking to our homeschool friends. We are watching the news and watching Netflix streaming shows. And our imaginations are getting fed. And then along comes an opportune moment where a child asks a question. You know, you're watching Jane Austen and your child says, is that a book also? And you're like, oh my gosh, here's the moment. We can watch the movie, read the book, and then talk about it. I'm going to do that. That counts because it's all the stuff leading up to it that made that moment happen. It isn't happening in a vacuum. It's just that your planning is not this sort of intentional advanced planning. It's more the depth of research that then fosters this development. Am I overstating it? Do you agree? No, I think that is spot on. And I, I, it resonates so much with me because 
one of the things I have loved the most about homeschooling is that it gives me every excuse in the world to feed myself, to feed my own interests, to dig deeply into what lights me up. And then I, I, two things happen. One, I'm better able to, if, if one of my kids has an interest in something, I know where we can go to find out more. I know how to facilitate that, but it also helps form connections. And I'm able to draw a connection that maybe wasn't there for my kids. It happened yesterday. It was so exciting. We're reading poems every day. And um, a poem that we read reminded me of this Linda Gregg essay on poetry, where she talks about the art of finding. It's a beautiful essay. I love that essay. (laughs) And as I was writing about it on my blog, which is how I often figure out what I think about anything, I yep. suddenly went, oh, the art of finding. That is a play on, uh, on Elizabeth oh. Bishop's poem, One Art, The Art of Losing. And so I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm, I can't wait. I can't wait to share that poem with them tomorrow. And so feeding myself a rich diet of stuff that I'm interested in only makes me better at this homeschooling gig. A thousand percent because you are activating the experience of learning. And when you activate the very experience your child is having, you not only offer more empathy, but you're laying the rails that they can travel on. You know, one of the chief challenges of the current brand new modern homeschooler is that many of them have come out of the COVID experience. And so their chief model is traditional school format. Then they entered into Zoom video homeschooling, which nobody liked. The teachers didn't like it, (laughs) students didn't like it, homeschoolers judged the parents who had their kids in that format. Like it was just a universal no from everybody. And so now some of those parents have kept their kids home but they're still in this more traditional mindset, right? They're still thinking that school is something that you do to a child or you provide to a child. But what we've discovered in these decades of homeschooling research, and it goes all the way back to the 1970s before half of this audience was born. Let's just be (laughs) honest. That's how old I am now. Um, When we go all the way back, homeschooling is actually family learning. It is the ability to translate an education into a lifestyle in the home. And that is such a departure from what we do in school. So when we're talking on this podcast and why I'm so thrilled to have Melissa here with us now, because she is still homeschooling even, is that we know what that looks like. So if you're nervous, if you're afraid, if you've been on this journey for the last two years and you're still trying to figure out what it's like, yeah. Me too. That was me too. (laughs) And there are people who've made it through that gauntlet and have come out with family learning that's oriented to the home that can help you value the path that you're on. And it starts with your curiosity about learning. It starts with your interest in the experience of learning, not delivering school. Exactly right. Exactly right. The way that it happens in the home is just different. And I, I, there were wrong turns that I took along yes. the way, you know, it was all, I mean, we had a few capsized voyages during high tide. <laughs> oh my gosh, Melissa, we need to do a whole show on capsized voyages. 
<laughs> oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> Write that down. Let's let's just do a whole show on failed homeschool experiences. She's writing it down, I team. We're it. gonna do it. That'll I be am. that'll I be am. hugely that, popular. You know, <laughs> like I would have loved to read that in yes. my earlier days of homeschooling. I remember once I'm um, having a conversation with a woman who had at the time in the 90s, like a super popular website that was about managing a household with a large family. And like, she had a huge following and she mentioned to me once she, there was something that she had meant to send me. And she said, and I said, you know what? I don't even need it. It's fine. And she said, Oh, thank goodness. Because my house is a wreck. And if I had to find it, I don't know what I do. And I was like, ah, that's the post I want to read. <laughs> yes, exactly. You are right. the perfect homemaker. Tell me about your mistake or, you know, that you're in a bit like a rough patch with it. That's yes. what I want to hear. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. <laughs> I keep getting asked, where do I start, Julie? What do I start with, with Brave Writer? You know, the best answer I can give you is this. If you're at the point where your child can read and handwrite, what you want to do is use my writing manual called Growing Brave Writers. It really takes you soup to nuts from making marks on the page all the way to editing a final draft of any paper your child writes. Whether your child is a reluctant writer or someone who enjoys writing, Growing Brave Writers is the place to start. Use discount code GBWPOD10, the number 10, GBWPOD10 to get 10% off when you order. Well, and especially in this sort of glitzy, glam Instagram world that we live in now where we're taking these peaks into the house. I mean, I can make my pictures look great. I know how to, I mean, right now, I'm just looking at my feet. Uh, Melissa and I are on Zoom and, you know, behind me looks pretty good. But if you looked at where my feet are, there are like, well, there's a Christmas wreath. There is a space heater. There is a box that literally, oh my gosh, Melissa. It literally has the name place cards for Thanksgiving in it from when my kids were children. I don't know why they're up here. Growing Brave Writers is on the floor. An old laptop computer is on the floor. Um, my beautiful fur mittens are on the floor. And then too many books to count because all of my bookcases are overflowing. And then my desktop has, oh, what are those? Cough drops, lipstick, pens, a diary, a um, $100 bill. <laughs> Oh, yeah. $100 bills on my desk. That's pretty cool. And um, my son's AirPods that need to be sent in for repair because I haven't done that yet because that requires a trip to the post office. Like, isn't that life? Isn't that so life? So there's life happening That's right. all around you. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of my um, one of my favorite memories from a conversation I had with someone close to me in my sphere, she said, Julie, you seem capable of thriving in chaos. <laughs> I said, if there's a prerequisite for having a large family, that is the one, right? And so yes. I'm not saying everyone thrives in this level of um, disarray, but I do know that embracing 
life as opposed to preparing for life is an asset in homeschooling. In other words, if you live endlessly in trying to get prepared with the right look and the right experience and the right plan, homeschooling will feel very distant and hard. But if you can sort of see homeschooling happening in the midst of the chaos and you can give yourself credit for when it's going on, you will start to enjoy it. That's right. That's right. And recognizing that the conversations that happen in the car or while you're doing dishes are as rich opportunities for learning for both you and the kids as those times when you very carefully, with a lot of thought, (laughs) put together a plan for learning. Melissa, can you give an example? Um, You have kids who are now graduated from high school and college. Can you give an example of one of the fruits that you see from that lengthy investment, like where you're like, yeah, I really think because she was homeschooled, this is who she is today. Do you have some of those? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Well, it was was very fun to uh, see my daughter my oldest, um, Kate, who is known on the blog as Jane, because in those days, of course, everybody um, gave their kids blog names. Um, (laughs) She was interested in um, computer programming and she took a class online and I mentioned it on my blog and a reader wrote me and said, hey, my husband's company is going to be looking for interns. And so that, so Kate, like her first trip away from home really was to stay with this family for a summer in Austin, Texas. And we lived in San Diego and she did this Python coding internship. And so it was like one experience led to another. And then she got, so that led to her acceptance at Cal Poly. And she told me that she felt almost guilty because all of her classmates there had had really had hard, you know, heavy loads for high school, lots and lots of AP classes. And she was like, I had such a good time and I wound up here anyway. (laughs) I still remember her first day of college, your husband, Scott, writing on his blog. He's an amazing writer, by the way. We're all a bunch of writing nerds over here. Um, But I remember him being like, so my little one went off to school for her very first day. <laughs> it's like, but you know, she also doesn't live at home. What a weird feeling, you know? I wonder what it's like. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really, really something else. Her first day of school was her first day of college. And that's been the case for my three oldest now. <laughs> yeah, you homeschooled and, and, them all you know, the way through. We always offered the option of going to high school if they wanted. And I remember the first time we asked Kate, like in eighth grade, would you, do you want to go? Would you be interested in a high school experience? And she laughed and she said, honestly, mom, I don't know where I'd find the time. Oh my gosh. That is the best (laughs) answer I've ever heard in my whole life. Oh my gosh. And did she, she find was, the transition difficult in terms of the workload, studying, taking tests? How was that for her? It was, some of it was really hard, um, especially being in this high pressure uh, computer science program where, I mean, I think they just destroy 
those students' health um, oh. by requiring these, you know, rapid. And the thing is, she was minoring in English and she took a linguistics class for the minor. Oh. And whew, she was just all lit up over linguistics. And I could tell as we would talk, like, ah, this is where her heart is. <laughs> ah. um, and she did wind up switching and sort of reversing to English linguistics as the central focus and computer science as the secondary. Um, Fascinating. And when she, when she came home from her first semester in college, I said, okay, hit me. What did I not do that I should have done? And she said, timed tests, mom. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Yeah. And her, uh, her teenage sister who was next in line was like shooting daggers across the table, like, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've always said that the time testing that is essay writing uh, for homeschooled kids who follow Brave Writer programs, they are prepared because they understand free writing and they know how to quickly access their thoughts and write. And what I discovered from my kids who actually went to public school is they did not get very much practice doing timed writing. And yet in college, it's one of the primary ways that a teacher can guarantee that they're getting the students writing, that it's not plagiarized. It's not somebody writing the essay for them. So it's taking a greater role in assessment at the college level. We also hear rumblings about oral assessments coming because of chat GPT, which by the way, <laughs> spoiler alert, Melissa and I will cover in an entire show to discuss what's going on with artificial intelligence and writing. But all that to say it is possible to prepare our kids while they are at home for those experiences. But here's the kicker. Their whole self-esteem won't hang in the balance while you're doing right. it. They will get to ah. do it as practice, not as a measurement of whether they're worthy of being admitted to a college. Oh my gosh, that is such a good point. Oh, that's yeah. really good. Right. So a lot of what we're doing when we homeschool is we're preparing our kids to have a sane adult life. Yes, yes. And to learn how to assess their own well-being as they're That's right. entering into these experiences. Um, just like Kate recognizing that that computer science program, while there were things about it that she liked, it was not healthy. Um, and there well, was something that did make her feel alive and happy. And she knew that she was allowed to want to feel alive and happy because she has felt it before. One of the yes. things about this sort of treadmill of traditional education is that you get taught a set of values that are counteracting your natural experience. And if you are taught that over and over, pretty soon you stop trusting your personal experience and you start trusting those values. So one of the values is that learning is happening when learning is hard which is not true, but effort supposedly reinforces more than ease. Also not true. The idea that learning has to happen in all the subjects every day, or you're going to lose ground in one of the subjects. Not right. true. Right? Not true. Right. Uh, the idea that the teacher knows more than the student and the teacher has the answers and the student has to learn what the teacher considers the answers that's not true. These are all structures designed for order, for the sense of control, to um, manage large numbers of kids, to get them through a body of information. But it's not about designing a life. That I mean, no adult wants that life. In fact, teachers are notoriously burned out. 
Um, when I was going through my vocal cord problems, my um, otolaryngologist, there's a word for my uh, my poor podcast show notes guy to spell, <laughs> otolaryngologist told me their number one clientele are teachers because no one is spent to speak out loud seven hours a day. And they beat up their voices. They can't just use the bathroom whenever they want. They have no social time. It's a very difficult and demanding lifestyle. Mm. And we put our kids through it as though it's ordinary. I don't know about you, Melissa, but I remember my very first quarter of college and I got my schedule and there's like all this room around your classes. You go to class at nine and then two hours before your class at 11. And I remember the first week just being like Elaine on Seinfeld when they made the lanes wider on the freeway. And she was like, it's so roomy. That's how I felt. I'm like, this schedule is so roomy. It felt so sane. It felt so manageable. It felt like I could study and learn and not just be pushed through this grinder. That was a very long monologue. But do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And one of the things that struck me in what you were saying is that I think as adults, many of us don't like we we don't always hold ourselves to that same line of thinking about um, the sequential. Like if you interrupt the, the you know daily sequence of the learning, it won't happen because we all have these other things that we just don't count really as like areas of expertise or knowledge, but that we have learned tons about in a piecemeal fashion over the course of our lives. I think about German. I took German in high school and, and then I took it one year in college and then there would be years go by. And then I was like, Oh, my German's getting rusty. I want to learn more. And it's now been like, what, 30, 35 years of me every two, three years rediscovering that I'm interested in speaking German and and brushing up and moving a little bit forward, understanding a little bit more. The interruption to that sequence of learning, something that for me does have to be kind of on purpose learning because I'm not in a German immersion environment. It didn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter that I took five years off at one point. What an amazing example. You know, the other thing that I learned when I was raising Noah, who is not interested in linear sequential learning, but only interested in immersion learning, uh, I consulted with an educational specialist who told me and gave me the brain research at the time. So we're talking 1991, something like that. And basically what they were saying is the brain really likes the deep dive. The brain likes the deep dive. It doesn't like compartmentalized learning. And so Mm -hmm. she was urging me to actually go with this passion and actually do the subjects in quarter long chunks. Like she said, you don't need to do math every day for the whole school year. You might do all the math he needs in one quarter of the whole school year. And I actually tested this theory with him. I told him because he was really balking at math. And I said, She said, maybe Ty doing his math work to something like a video game purchase at the end. I don't really recommend this, by the way. This is just what I was experimenting with in 1992 or whatever it was. (laughs) And so anyway, I gave him this math book and he started working on it. And he got it done in a weekend. The whole thing. Because he wanted the video game. And I suddenly realized, oh my gosh... Um, I have to have a completely different construct for learning. This wasn't a deep dive. This wasn't actually mastery. What this was, was 
I want a video game and I'm too smart for this book. But I didn't know he was too smart for the book. I thought I had to teach it two pages a day for a whole year. It was kind of fun to find out. Actually, he knew everything in that book. I was wasting his time. And he knew it and I knew it and we got it done. And so we went into a much more natural approach to math after that. Just to fast forward, by the way, (laughs) he got into high school. We did some algebra two at the local high school and then he was bored. Totally bored. Didn't want to do like, (laughs) you know, whatever's next, pre-calculus, trigonometry. He wasn't interested. And today he is a self-taught computer programmer in the language of Python and a whole bunch of other languages that I just found out about. And uh, for fun, he's working on pre-calc on his own with his brother, who's also an adult. I think we are messed up. It, It really meets what you're talking about. We're messed up with this idea that there's a body of information they must get through in a linear sequential way with certain content each year that culminates at the age of 21 when they leave college. Yes. Yes. You know, when you, you're, you're, it's so roomy story about your first semester yes. of college. Mine is that that semester, that first semester, I happened to have Western Civ, theater history, and world literature all at the same time. And it blew my mind because I was like, wait, these things all happened to get like, it was three, so it was history, drama and English, right? Or literature. Yes. And I had been trained by my education to see those as separate boxes with without overlap. And I just remember being like, ah, 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 those are the people who, who, who were doing the plays that I'm reading or who wrote this poem that we're reading. Like that lack of connection explains so much to me about my frustrations as a student <sighs> And my longing for something that would let me go deep. It felt like we always whisked away to something else just when I was getting into it. It's been a long time, like rehashing the stuff. Like we never got past the Revolutionary War in history. (laughs) Doesn't it seem like that's true? That's hilarious. I felt that way in school all the time. That's such a good point. But I love what you just said about the interconnectedness. That is one of the beauties of homeschool. I called into a radio show in Los Angeles one time because the show host, Bill Handel, and his guests were bashing homeschooling and I was really annoyed by it. And I was, I'm kind of a firebrand in case nobody picked that up yet. So I dialed <laughs> in and the show screener said, okay, yeah, we're going to put you through. And so Bill Handel's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell He's a lawyer for those of you who don't know and aren't from LA. So he's he's like loves to debate. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me why homeschooling is so great. And I said, well, Bill, it works like this. I have five kids. They're all at different levels. But if we're studying World War II, everybody is into it. We're watching movies at night. My husband's into it. The kids are talking about it all day. They're acting out war orphan in their play. We're reading books together. And he goes, but couldn't you do that even if you were in school? Couldn't we all talk about World War II at the dinner table? I said, sure, but four of the five kids won't be studying it in school. They'll be studying something else. I said, homeschooling allows for the content to be shared in a meaningful interpersonal way. And Bill, to his credit, said, now that's interesting. And then we went to break. (laughs) (laughs) Whisked on just when it was getting interesting. (laughs) And we're ready for the deep dive. That's it. It's so true. And that freedom that you have to include the whole family in Mm. 
a topic that you're immersing in creates such wonderful bonds and relationships between the kids. And there's a frame of reference. You know, I know of um, a homeschooler and unschooler who used to teach. And she says that kids would ask her, like, why do we have to learn this? And she would say, so that you get jokes. Uh, that's what I used to say. Oh my gosh. <laughs> really? I love that. I probably heard it from her. I'm sure it's a secondhand <laughs> insight. <laughs> it's so true though. Like that connection that happens, that, that spark of understanding and, and two more strands of the web come together and the world makes just a little bit more sense. And then the, that happens with relationship webs as well. Scott and I often joke that like, we have a joke. He'll he'll say something that's a reference to some, you know, something that happened to me before I met him when I was like 12 years old. And he'll say, uh, I'd like to see the next guy do that. Um, and the joke is that the next guy is will be a dog. Um, <laughs> um, because if I ever lost Scott, um, I'll get a dog. Um, it's a bad joke. <laughs> but it's so true that that web of shared in jokes and experiences that we have is part of what I treasure in our relationship. And the same thing with my kids and then my kids with each other. And then with and the large, with you, Julie, yes, with you a hundred percent. And then the larger culture, right? Like I, some of you don't know, but, um, I like to obsessively watch reruns when I'm working on books. And so when I worked on the brave learner, it was friends. When I worked on raising critical thinkers, it was the big bang theory. Um, this is how I would take a break, let my brain relax. And I love knowing what joke is coming. I laugh at it way harder on the fourth viewing than I do on the first viewing. That's just my temperament. So anyway, I've watched The Big Bang Theory many times all the way through. And recently I picked up this book by Alan Lightman called The Accidental Universe. It's a collection of essays about the universe. He's an MIT astrophysicist. And he's referencing the Hedron Collider, the Higgs boson. He's talking about the theory of symmetry in the universe. I only know these things because of the Big Bang Theory. And it was that is so perfect. fabulous to read this book and have a frame of reference for why these were in this sitcom. You know, it can go either way. You could have studied those things and then watched the sitcom and know them. But one thing I've learned over these years of home education in particular is that second meetings are when the relationship starts. So on that first meeting, you don't feel any connection. You go into an art museum, everything looks the same. You're like, how are these paintings different again? They all have fat angel babies. Like, what, what am I looking at? But if you go into the bookstore before you go and you look at a collection of postcards of paintings that are in that museum, just that one introduction in the bookstore before you get to the room with the painting makes that painting interesting. I don't know why, but that's when the relationship starts. It's on the second meeting, right? That is so good and so true. I like now my mental Rolodex is just flipping through all of the times that that has happened for me. That, that recognition, it's, it's like, it's like when you hear about something, I had a college professor who called this the Yugo syndrome because the, of the Yugo car in the eighties. Um, I remember he, it. He said like, like you don't know it exists. And then suddenly you hear about it. And then after that, everywhere you go, you're seeing Yugos. You're seeing this car. 
Everywhere and you like, go. Were they around me the whole? It's not like they just appeared in my town the day I heard the name. You have a peg to hang the knowledge on Ugh. now that you know the name. That's exactly right. I love that. Let's say that again. You have a peg to hang the knowledge on. That's why I say homeschooling, any education actually from kindergarten through about 12th grade is just match.com. It's just endless <laughs> introductions. You're just meeting all these different people and some of them are ugly and some of them are beautiful and some of them are funny and some of them are boring. And you're just like, which one will I give a second date to? <laughs> <laughs> that's all it is that is hilarious but isn't that I true to and, tell that one to my kids <laughs> well and even your oldest daughter's story is so perfect because she went on a series of dates with python and she's like right. i think this is the one and then right, she gets right. to school and she's like actually linguistics is so sexy <laughs> yes and by the way when she when she told me you know i'm thinking about changing my major um to linguistics What's your thought about that? I said, Kate, you're my child whose diary is written in elvish runes. Oh, this does not surprise me. (laughs) Oh my gosh, is that true? (laughs) Yes, yes. She learned from the Silmarillion. And um, yeah, as a teenager, I remember like I'd pass by her desk and um, there was no chance anybody was going to be able to read that. <laughs> you know, I have two kids who majored in linguistics and I just think it's so interesting. Obviously we're families who put a high priority on language, right? And so then to see them go and actually use that love in the context of an academic space, both of the kids in my family were my oldest and my youngest. And my oldest, of course, is the one who got into constructed and invented languages. And it started with the Canterbury Tales. It started with his dad and him talking about the Canterbury Tales. I read it because it was on the Charlotte Mason list and I had studied it in college and thought it would be fun. And I showed them this is a translation and we're reading a story form, but there is like this old, really hard to pronounce English. And I know the first two lines because my roommate and I had to memorize them together. When on Abra with the Shura Sutta, the Drukt of March hath pierced to the Ruta, whatever. Still know him. And bothered every vine in such liqueur. <laughs> oh my God, I knew this podcast was going to be fun. We'll just like recite Chaucer one day just for the hell of it. Yes. Um, but in any case, Noah got fascinated. So then John started helping Noah create his own dictionary of all the Chaucerian terms. So Noah has his own like old lexicon trying to translate Chaucer, which is not shocking then that he got interested in Klingon and constructed (laughs) languages like Esperanto and then languages that are still under construction, which led to computer languages. Like how is that not shocking in any way? Meanwhile, Katrin, who was my latest reader, discovered reading through Greek. Like, right. 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 And then you never became, know what the doorway will be. You do not. And then languages, she studied French and German and Hindi. Like when you look at your family, the results of their lives will look like who they were. Right. It's, it's not like there's some other person that's going to emerge at 20. So who they are right now, even if their their um, desires change, it's still going to match a certain aspect of who they are. And so leaning into who they are supports them building the life that feels roomy and spacious and good to them. That is 
so true. Uh, one of the best experiences that I have had um, homeschooling my daughter, Rilla, on the blog, um, who is, oh my gosh, 16, 17. I just forgot how old she is. Um, <laughs> this past year, uh, we we were watching, we watched Pride and Prejudice. Every Saturday night, we hole up together and have some one-on-one time. And then we watched Emma. And then we watched another Emma. And then we we watched four Emma films in a row. And then we had the best time, like doing basically scene by scene comparisons, what was in, what was left out, how did this one handle this part and the costumes and the, I mean, it was amazing. And it just opened so many avenues of of discussion and exploration for the both of us. It wasn't just for, you know, her learning. I was learning too. You know, that side-by-side comparison was introduced to me by one of our staff members, Jeanette Hall. Jeanette and I met, similar to you, in the 1990s through an email list and became fast friends. And I remember when we moved to Ohio, she invited our whole family down to her home. She lives in Kentucky. And we spent all this time in the basement with her queuing up speeches by different hamlets. And then... (laughs) side-by-side comparisons of scenes from Shakespeare plays. And then we would discuss the acting choices and the language pronunciations. And and it was revelatory to me. That's when I first learned to do that. I love, love that method of learning. Me too. Julie, did you listen to the Hamlet performed um, by a guy who does it in a Southern, a U.S. Southern accent? I have not. Scott pulled this up for us yesterday because we had been listening to Midsummer Night's Dream on audio, which led to some conversation about Shakespearean Elizabethan English and how there are places like in Appalachia where English is closer to oh my gosh um, how it was spoken in England in the 1600s because of who settled there and and uh, how you know, that was an insular area without a lot of language crossover to some other parts of the country. And um, Scott pulled up this monologue about, or you know, from Hamlet by this guy who does it in a Southern accent. And it sounded more right to me than any Hamlet that I have ever heard. We are going to put that in the show notes and I need that link. (laughs) That is incredible. That's incredible. In fact, Jim, my boyfriend, the the guy in my life, my person, as I like to call him, uh, he had never seen Shakespeare until he met me. And like you, I'm a huge Shakespeare person. So I took him to see Hamlet at our local Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. We're sitting in the front row, not kidding. And all of a sudden, out walks a woman and she's playing Hamlet. (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) I cannot believe this is going to be your first experience of Hamlet, Hamlet by a woman. It was brilliant. It was awesome. And then I said, well, maybe we should watch like some other versions. And so we watched two more versions of Hamlet that weekend, uh, ending with Laurence Olivier, which was my memory from high school of watching that. And so similar to your Jane Austen, Emma Bender, we did that with Hamlet three times Mm -hmm. in a row. I will tell you something. I've seen that play countless times, but watching it three times back to back within the span of four days, I heard lines I've never heard before. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, suddenly your aptitude for noticing and observing is just fine tuned when you do that side by side stuff. What a fabulous tool we can give everybody today. (laughs) I love it. I will just add that whenever I talk about 
any European community settling in <laughs> any part of North America, I just want to acknowledge that they were not the first people there by a long shot. Oh, I think that's so, so important. I heard myself telling that story and not acknowledging that, and it bothered me. I'm glad that you did. That is perfect. Thank you, Melissa. My gosh, <laughs> I think we're going to enjoy this. What do you think? Oh my gosh, I think we're going to have a blast. <laughs> so I just want everyone to know, we have this massive list of podcast topics that you've all sent us. And now I have a queen researcher on the team named Melissa. Her favorite thing to do is research. So we will be going through them and we are going to be meeting once a week at least. And who knows, maybe we'll end up twice a week if we really get this thing rolling. But we are eager to give you the support you need around writing and homeschooling. Melissa, we didn't even talk about the writing piece. So let's like put that on the next show. And we're going to talk about how professional writing is a template for writing instruction because that's the gift of Brave Writer. That's what we kind of want to bring to the table here. And I promise you, it will be as rollicking as this conversation. (laughs) Oh, I'm so excited for all the conversations we get to have. I know. This is like um, a play date. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. (laughs) Thanks, Melissa. Thank you, Julie. I am just so excited to be on board. I'm as excited as I've ever been about anything. So glad you joined us today. I can't wait for this new adventure that we're on, Melissa and I together. (laughs) Seriously, I had more fun. We could have talked for another two hours. And here's the good news. We get to. So I look forward to seeing you back every Wednesday. We may move to a two episode a week model. We'll see how that goes. But for now, thank you for joining us. Uh, This coming Friday, we have a bonus episode for you all about screen time and parenting. So I hope you'll join me for that interview. I did, um, Melissa was not with me. I interviewed our guest and you'll see who it is then. I look forward to seeing you back. Thanks for joining me on the Brave Writer Podcast. This is the part of the podcast where I ask you to leave a review. You can leave stars or words, whatever your choice is. If you've already left a review, thank you so much. You never know, Natalie might read yours one of these weeks. The truth is I love podcasting and I couldn't do it without you. I'd love your ideas for the next topics you'd like me to discuss on the show. To let us know, reach out to us via our SMS or texting number. That number is one 833 947-3684. I know that's a mouthful. Don't worry. It's in the show notes. Simply text the word pod to be added to the podcast group and then just text us any ideas you have for future shows. We're already building a beautiful Excel spreadsheet with all your ideas. Hey everyone, Natalie with the Brave Writer team, and I've got another five-star review for you. And this one comes from Chair of Foley's. It's titled, Love and Need This. A fellow homeschool mom introduced me to Julie Brave Writer almost a year ago, but only in the last week have I discovered her podcast. I've been homeschooling for over 10 years and I find myself in awe of the freedom she gives us 
permission to have with ourselves and in our schooling experience with our kids. Thank you to Chair of Bullies. Don't forget to submit your five-star review so we can share it here on the podcast. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you.